finally, and I think most irascibly, is that I am not willing to jeopardize the safety of my family, my country, my society and community to make certain diaspora Jews feel more comfortable at cocktail parties. Welcome back to the Corin Podcast. Uh, thank you for joining us as always. We are really, really excited about this week's episode. We are going to be joined by um, Michael Oren, um, who is a historian, a novelist, um, a writer, a thinker, a politician, to hear what he has to say uh, when we ask him to teach the whole Torah standing on one leg. Um, and so without further ado, here is our conversation with uh, Michael Oren. We are honored, privileged, delighted to be joined by uh, Michael Oren, former ambassador, former member of Knesset, former minister, deputy minister. A lot of former. A lot of formers, <laughs> um, but a, a current pleasure yes. um, to, to have with us this week. And so uh, we'll jump straight in and ask our one question uh, of the season. Um, Michael Aron, please, can you teach us the whole Torah standing on one leg? On one foot. First of all, the pleasure is entirely mutual. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, I can do it not just on one foot. I could probably do it on one toe because uh, it's one word answer. Uh, the answer is responsibility. I've defined, even in this book in 2048, I talk about the, the essence of Zionism for me is responsibility. It's only in the framework of a, a sovereign Jewish country that the Jewish people can take full responsibility for ourselves, whether it's responsibility for the electricity in this, uh, in this studio or the sewage pipes that run under it or the defense of our skies that are above us. Um, this is our responsibility. It's only here that Jews, as Jews, can take responsibility for themselves. Now, I understand that this podcast will be broadcast uh, in a couple of weeks from now, but we are here now at the sort of on the eve of the holiday of Shavuot. And I've often thought of Shavuot being the ultimate Zionist holiday. Why is it a Zionist holiday? Because the Jewish people, the children of Israel, when we were in slaves in Egypt, we had no responsibility. The essence of slavery is the absence of responsibility. You get up in the morning, you know, you don't have to figure out what you're going to work, what we wear to work. You don't have to figure out where you're going to work, right? <laughs> slavery means the absence of any agency, as we say today. Um, and suddenly, the Jewish people are free. They are free, but the freedom that they get is a freedom without responsibility. Now, I'm a little older than you gentlemen, uh, and I remember the, the youth rebellion of the 60s very well, and there, the notion of freedom in the 60s was the absence of responsibility. You had no responsibility to family, you had no responsibility to nation, you had no responsibility to God, certainly. Um, and that was a, a very nihilistic and self-destructive, I think, freedom. Um, and the Bible understands, and frankly, the founding fathers of the United States understood that there's no freedom without law. The great, guarantor, the great guarantee of freedom is law and restrictions. And, and that's, there is no true freedom from slavery until Sinai, until the giving of the law. And it's only by accepting that law that the Jewish people become free. They accept responsibility and become free. And so that is, if you want to know what my Mishnati, my, my Torah is that. Um, Responsibility is not easy. Um, sovereignty is messy. It's very messy. We know this especially now with protests in the street and, um, and threats still in the region, the Iranian threat. This is what we, these are the responsibilities we have assumed 
by coming back to our homeland and establishing an independent state. This is a, it's kind of a Sinai moment. It is, and I'm, I'm acutely aware of that every Shavuot. So uh, many, many questions to ask. I mean, well, we say it's one question and you know, but lots more to come. Um, but I guess before we get there, um, and dig into some of the kind of more recent events. Can you tell us a little about that, this idea of responsibility? Do you feel like, wh wh when did you first engage with that? Where did you first learn about it? Is it from your upbringing? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I grew up as a, the only Jewish kid in a very non-Jewish neighborhood. Um, uh, Sicilians, by the way. Those who've ever watched the series uh, Sopranos, it was literally filmed <laughs> in my neighborhood until they told them to get out <laughs> in no uncertain terms, not in those words. And, uh, but I used to get beat up every day for being Jewish. So I encountered anti-Semitism from a very early age. It was part of my life. I, I was very surprised to meet Jews later in life who had never experienced anti-Semitism. It's very strange. You know, what planet were they growing up on? And I you know, learned to use my fists at an early age, um, not always very successfully. And when I was less than successful, I would come home very bloodied. And my father, Allah um, Vashalom, would um, take me down to the basement to an alcove behind the stairs in which he kept an album, a, a photo album. It was a photo album that was made by my uncle, my Uncle Joe. Both my Uncle Joe and my father landed on Normandy Beach in World War II, fought across Europe together. But my uncle happened to be with a unit that liberated a concentration camp, and he had a camera, and he took the pictures of what he saw. They're the horrors. And when I come there bloodied with the, you know, running nose, and my father would open up this album and show me the pictures um, of the piled bodies of the skeletons, um, he would say to me, you see that, son? You see that? That's why we need a strong state of Israel. And when you hear that at that age, you've just been called a Jesus killer, a Christ killer. Uh, it has a very profound effect. Um, I also grew up during the period of the Six-Day War, and we... You know, we look at the great victory of 67. We recently celebrated Jerusalem Day here and Jerusalem, you know, just a miraculous victory. But I don't remember the victory. I remember the weeks before the war when Israel was surrounded by Arab armies and my parents thought that they would witness a second Holocaust in one generation. And no one was going to help us. Not even the United States of America. Not even American Jews. American Jews were out protesting, but they were protesting against the Vietnam War. There were huge protests for Israel in 1967. And so that left a, a profound impact on me also. Um, the fact that we could only take responsibility for ourselves. And uh, from the earliest days, I, I just knew I wanted to live here. Now, I had a very assimilated uh, background. I didn't know what the Talmud was. I didn't know what Kashrut was. I, didn't, I, read, I had a bar mitzvah, but I read it in English. <laughs> I read it in English. I didn't, know what, I didn't know Hebrew. But I just I had this very pervasive sense that uh, my destiny was tied up with this place. And so at age 15, I came here alone, um, and I began to work on a kibbutz. And I was, a little, I was a little crazy because I used to work all year long uh, mowing lawns, raking leaves, shoveling snows to get enough money to come here every summer and work on a kibbutz for free. <laughs> <Okay>? <laughs> and I thought of myself as the luckiest kid in the world. I was a cowboy on the Golan Heights, herding cattle on a horseback uh, at age 15, 16. And uh, we just had, I don't know how much time we have, but now I'm working with a, uh, a cattle technology uh, developed by two cowboys up in the Galilee. And uh, I'll be able to do this because I actually know something about being a cowboy. Um, I remember, but, um, and Israel back then was the Wild West. Um, there was nothing here um, to call home to the United States, you had to sit there with a huge bag of what of these tokens called the simonim, 
and put them into a phone for hours and hours and hours to maybe speak for five minutes with your parents, and that would cost about $100. Um, there was no central heating. Was, in Jerusalem, it was freezing cold. They had kerosene lamps. You go down to a gas station with two jerry cans to fill up with <laughs> kerosene and light, light your hole. You would huddle around it. And there was no food <laughs> because even the falafel was bad. There was no restaurants. It was amazing. Um, and I immediately went into the Army. I was a, a paratrooper, a lone soldier at a time when nobody knew what lone soldiers were. And there were, today, there, I had the honor in Knesset of establishing the Lone Soldier Caucus, and we held hearings on lone soldiers. There are 50 different organizations dealing with lone soldiers today. Wow. There were none back then. There were a handful of lone soldiers. There was no food. There was no clothing. It was, it was, you, you didn't shower in the Army back then. You showered once every two weeks. When you came home, when you came home, there was no, there was no hot water, or at least not enough hot water for you to do your body and your dirty uniform together. <laughs> so I would get all of us into a bathtub and sort of squish around. Um, very difficult, very difficult, difficult country. But um, there was a sense, there was a sense of, of being part of the most exciting, challenging, uh, fulfilling event in 2,000 years of Jewish history. And um, I made Aliyah with a, a lot of friends, uh, some of whom became very prominent in Israeli public life. Uh, all of us were very dedicated. And, uh, Looking back, as difficult it was, and I'm only giving you the, the short, you know, what they call the monarch notes of how difficult it was, um, uh, was the best decision I ever made in my life. And we've had, we've had lords, we've had knights, we've had rabbis and rabbani on the podcast. I think you're the first uh, cowboy we've ever, we've ever had. Um, <laughs> I, it's not going to make much, fun, <laughs> much sense to you guys with your accents, but I used to refer to myself as Oi Rogers. You don't know. Roy Rogers. No, I'm, I'm there. I, I got the it. reference. I got the reference. I'm, Roy I'm, Rogers, I'm a man the of the Jewish world. cowboy. <laughs> um, I, before we look forward, which I know is, is the topic of, of your new book, 2048, uh, The Rejuvenated State, I just want to take uh, just one more brief moment to, to look back. Um, as so we hinted to at the top of the podcast, you know, you're uh, quite the polymath. Uh, lots of formers, you know, a, a former member oh. of Knesset, former deputy minister, former ambassador, a former filmmaker, a former a, a current author, historian. Um, and this idea of responsibility, and I think Aria was touching on this as well. Um, what, I mean, what are those, like, what, are the, how do all of those things sort of feed into this idea of taking responsibility um, and sort of lead you to where you are today? And then as, moving forward as, as, as looking to the future. This book was my responsibility. The, the origin was, uh, this is now about five years ago, I was the deputy administered the prime minister. I walked into the prime minister's office and I said, you know something, we are bogged down every day in dealing with uh, crises. We never think about our future. And once upon a time, during the formative years of Zionism, between the 1860s and the 1940s, uh, the Jewish world was engaged in a, a very deep and vibrant debate about the future of the state. Was it going to be a socialist state? Was it going to be a capitalist state? Was it going to be a religious state or a secular state? Pro-West, pro-East, all these different issues. Um, and those discussions proved to be absolutely critical in the emergence of the state. I would even go so far as to say as, as much as by the power of the word as by the power of the sword, this, came, this country came into being. And we lost this ability because we're so bogged down. So the prime minister got very excited and said, well, let's create a state commission to do this. State commissions are difficult to form. Um, I spent about a year going through all the, the legal um, bureaucracy of it, and then the government fell, as they do. Uh, and then I called a good friend of mine, Natan Sharansky, and I said, listen, we really should be having this discussion somewhere. So we moved it into the Hartman Institute uh, for a year, and we had an extraordinary discussion with wonderful minds um, during that year, uh, particularly focusing on the future of Israel diaspora relations. And I learned an immense amount. Uh, 
Uh, but then Corona hit. And uh, locked in my room in Corona, I thought, well, I have to assume responsibility for this. There's no, there's no dodging this responsibility. And I sat down and started to write. And yes, a lot of formers. So whether as a, a former soldier or a statesman diplomat or as a politician or just a citizen in this country, um, you acquire a tremendous amount of information and ideas. And I found that once I started writing, I couldn't stop. And the, the chapters kept on adding up. Um, to be fair, uh, when I began to show it to some young people, they said, well, where's the chapter on gender issues? Where's the chapter on environmental issues? And I hadn't thought about that. Uh, so I went back to the drawing board uh, and learned about it. I made two vows in writing this book. The first vow was that I would not shy away from any issue, no matter how controversial and how, how, many, how potentially um, combustible it was. And some there, you will see there are very some combustible issues there. The Haredi issue, the Bedouin issue, uh, Israel diaspora relations, um, Israeli Arabs, the peace process. The longest chapter in this book is about the peace process. And I've had the honor slash uh, trauma of being involved in the peace process from many angles. I was an advisor to Yitzhak Rabin during the Oslo period, and I was advisor to the Trump peace plan. And in between, I participated in the last round of negotiations with the Palestinians. So I'm writing from a certain very sort of multifaceted personal experience. So the first fact was I was, wasn't going to shy away from anything. And the second was that the, that the book would be policy-driven. There's only one ideological assumption in the book, and that is we, the Jewish people, are a people, and as a people, we are endowed with an incontestable right to self-determination in our homeland. After that, everything's open. Everything's open. And um, the purpose of the book is not to convince anybody of my arguments. My purpose of the book is to convince people to get involved in the debate. It's to spur a discussion, particularly among young people. You know, I don't want to in any way curtail my own longevity, but I don't know 100% if I'm going to be around for the 100th birthday of the state of Israel. I'm going to be a very old man. But young people in Israel now will be adults, they'll have children, they'll have grandchildren. It's really their discussion that they should be having. And my experience going around and talking to uh, young people, particularly in the Mechinot, and I have a Mechina discussion this week, um, is that they're, they're, they're so eager, they're so hungry to have that discussion, to have somebody give them the framework, some of them give them the encouragement uh, to have that discussion. And I think uh, if we are to have a second successful century, it is not too late. In fact, we better start it now to begin that discussion. I'm just interested in asking, obviously, this is the Quorum podcast and we're looking at books. Um, you've written, I mean, prolifically on history. Uh, your book on the Six-Day War is pretty much the book on the Six-Day War. I think personally that was where one of the first places I encountered you when I, was, uh, when I read that book. Um, and also fiction as well. Um, how is, is writing a book of policy or, or sort of a manifesto, how is that a different experience to other writing that you've done in the past? And also, it's writing about the future for the first time. Mm, right. I've only written about the past. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that, that is also, I'm not a futurist. That's very difficult. And I'm not a prophet. Um, at a certain level, uh, it comes from the same place. It comes from a, a, a sort of a deep passion. Um, whether I'm writing a, a fiction or writing history, it comes from a place of love. It just does. Um, 
outside of that, cognitively, it comes from different parts of my brain. I'm, I'm capable of writing a short story, then turning around and writing about, you know, about social policy here. That's because it's, it's, one does not interfere with another, yeah. um, doesn't. Um, and I, I was working on a short story this morning, and now I'm talking about 2048. <laughs> it doesn't bother me. Uh, on the contrary, and the best compliment I get as a historian is that my history books read like novels. Right. And in my fiction, I, I draw a lot on my, um, a great deal on my, my, on my methodologies, historical methodologies um, that help me do research. So here again, I, a lot of research went into the book. I didn't know, I didn't know anything. Um, it's, um, it, it, again, it comes from that same place and uh, of deep, you know, I would say passion, not to belabor the term, but, but caring and love. Oh, so 2048 um, is your vision, your, your manifesto, as Ari said, for Israel in 25 years from now. Um, sort of just before we started recording, you, uh, you took a moment to be interviewed live on TV um, about the security situation and, and uh, Israel and American uh, relations. Um, as someone who, has, who made Aliyah alone, uh, was a lone soldier, has been here for, for a number of decades, um, and myself and Arie also, Olim, what's the, the one thing you would say to uh, our brothers and sisters who have not yet made Aliyah um, as the, the thing that's sort of, what's facing us right now? What's the most important issue facing Olim in Israel or even you know, Israelis in general? What's the one thing? As you know, they'll, they'll see on the news the protests. They see on the news when, when there's, God forbid, terrorist attacks or, or rocket attacks or, or whatever. But what's the message you want to give to you know, our, our friends and colleagues in, in, uh, in Chutzlaretz, America, England, wherever, um, as you know, the thing that you're not perhaps seeing on the news, but is the, the, the issue we're facing? Definitely. Again, I'm going to make it very simple for you. It's one word. And the word is peoplehood. And um, shocking how much you know, people either disagree with that word or have different interpretations of that word. Um, to understand that we are a people. We are a contentious people. We are a stiff-necked people. Anybody has a, any doubt that we are the direct descendants of the people of the Bible? Just have to read the Bible. Okay, we are so much. <laughs> I commiserate with Moses on a daily basis. We know what he went through. Um, and what does that mean? It just it doesn't mean that you you know walk into a room full of Jews anywhere. I've just come from a, a Jewish conference in uh, in Paris, and and even if you don't share the same language, you understand that you're mishpocha. You understand immediately. It's amazing. It's extraordinary. And even though you may disagree, and you may disagree profoundly on certain issues, and what does that mean? I'll give you one example. You know, I've been dealing with the peace process, and I used to tell uh, American mediators that our biggest problem with the Palestinians is not that they are not a people. Our biggest problem with the Palestinians is that they are not enough of a people. What does it mean? There are thousands of peoples in the world. Very few peoples are capable of sustaining a nation state structure. Now, we assume that every people can, but they can't, right? They're actually, you know, relative to the number of peoples in the world, there are very few nation states. And the Palestinians have been incapable of sustaining a nation state. Even in Gaza, they can't sustain it. They break apart. The most extraordinary thing about the Jewish people is you can take Jews from 70 different nations in the world. Don't share a common language. Do not share a skeleton culture. We have the same tradition. We have memories. But beyond that, you stick them in a country that has no natural resources. You stick them in a country that's surrounded by adversaries. And we are going to create one of the most highly function, functional nation states on the planet. Guess what? We are a people. 
And yet that peoplehood is what is being, is, is, is the most directly threatened this day, particularly during this period. Why? We have, say, the Haredim and the ultra-Orthodox, where their sense of peoplehood is different than many. I don't see a tremendous sense of, of commitment to peoplehood on behalf of, of some Haredi, Haredi movements. Um, and even among, say, secular Israelis, feeling a sense of peoplehood with the Haredim. It, it, it's mutual. It's a big challenge. There are many, many divisions in this country. There's divisions between right and left, between center and periphery. I'm saying as someone who lives in the center. Um, between Ashkenazi and Mizrahi, Western Jews, Eastern Jews, and I'm a part of a, a congregation in, in Jaffa, which is almost entirely Mizrahi, and I, I get, it gives me different perspectives. Um, Arabs and Jews, obviously, but let's say keep this a Jewish issue. Um, and all of these schisms in Israeli society have been compressed over the course of most of Israel's existence by this, uh, this uh, conflict known as the Arab-Israeli conflict that kept us together. We couldn't really disagree that much because we had a common enemy. All of a sudden, that enemy is disappearing. We don't face any large Arab conventional force on our borders. We're having the Arab states are not quite lining up to make peace with us, but you know they're making peace with us one after another. And all of a sudden, in the absence of this external threat, the, the divisions with Israeli society are coming to the fore. And the biggest division of all, the greatest threat we face, and I say this as someone who's been dealing with the Iranian nuclear threat for about 17 years now, and I'm in any way gonna diminish that threat, but the biggest threat is the division between those Israelis who want a normal state. Remember, that was one of the visions of the Zionist founders. We're gonna be a state like any other state. Um, People who want Israel to be Sweden or France uh, with culture and basic freedoms, freedoms for, say, LGBT people, um, freedoms of expression, art, culture, all that. Um, yeah, they want Jewish content, but it's not a Jewish state in that way. And the, those people who say, you know, the Jewish people were never normal. You know, God says to Abraham, guess what? You're not going to be normal. You're going to cross that river. You're going to be abnormal. So why, when we had a state, we would want to be a normal state. We're a Jewish state. I know of no division deeper than that. And that is what threatens us in the future. What are we about? A last word on this. Um, I am not a prophet. Um, there's a chapter in this book th that deals with the need for the reform of the, for the high court, of the Supreme Court. I wrote that chapter three years ago. And it's exactly the issues that are going on today about the way Supreme Court judges are chosen, the scope of the court, all of that. But there's another chapter, one of the opening chapters, has to deal with what I call Israeliness, Israeli identity. That's something that binds us together. And if I were to go back and rewrite that chapter today, I, I would um, sort of adduce as Exhibit A and Exhibit B and Exhibit D some of the big divisions that are coming out today. And that the way to address this is to reassert uh, peoplehood and Israeli identity as a way to bind together rather disparate uh, sections of Israeli society. Um, in this book, in 2048, you're looking 25 years ahead. Um, Which is a young man's idea of a long time. So I'm, 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 I'm interested in this you idea. young man. I, well, no, I, I, now I feel old because I thought 25 years is, isn't that far away. Yes, he isn't. I remember the 50th anniversary very well. And the bad news, I also remember the 25th anniversary. I was here for both of them. Yeah. Well, looking at Israel 50, even looking, I mean, at that space of time of 25 years, yeah. and going back to 1998, um, if we're thinking about how much has changed, Bibi Netanyahu was the prime minister. 
How much hasn't changed? Israel won the Eurovision, <laughs> didn't come right. third. Yeah. Um, wh- how, what do you feel can be achieved in 25 years? Do you think over the past 25 years, Israel's achieved significant things and in the next 25 years, you know, could, can, could more be, sort of, could we achieve more in the coming 25 years than we've done over the past 25 years? Or do you look at the past 25 and say, actually, look what we've achieved, think about how much more we could even do in the next. Interesting. No one's ever asked me that question. And I just got an answer that I've never given before. So this is a completely unique answer. I'm, I'm, I have a memory from 1998 of listening to Natan Sharansky speak. And I'll never forget what he said. I wonder if he remembers it. I should. I had dinner with him the other night. I wonder if he remembers it. He said the first 50 years of the state of Israel, creation of the state, would be building the state. Okay. The next 50, the next 50 years would be about building the um. Mm-hmm. All right, building the people of Israel. And talk about a prophet. He's absolutely right. If we are to survive and thrive and have a second successful century, well, because we're building a state. Hey, we've got good infrastructure here. Just go to the United States and see what bad infrastructure is like. And we don't have you know, brownouts. We have water that comes out of our tap that's better than anything you get in a bottle. I mean, you can, you can count on one hand the countries where they have that in the world. Yeah. Uh, we've got an army that's more than twice as large as the British and French armies combined. You know, an, an excellent universal health care system. In many ways, that we have mm. built this state. And we have built a, a state that is it's just remarkable by just any international criteria. Have we built the people? We have not. And we haven't begun to build that. We haven't begun to build that sense of, you know, biyachad, of that, of everyone together, we are one people. Um, and that is a, a task that is every bit, if not more Herculean, than building this country, draining, you know, draining the swamps and you know, fighting off our enemies, we're gonna have to confront ourselves. And that is huge. And do you think that we're running late on our homework for another yes. time? Yes, and I As in not if, too late. If, if that was 50 years, if, if that was his vision 25 years ago, 50 years time, we're now halfway through that time. Right, And that, I, I, deadline's I, coming. I get a sense that we haven't actually got that far in our homework. No, actually we regressed. Not only have we not built it, we've actually regressed. Now, there are parts I can point to, for example, here we're in Jerusalem, and, you know, you can go, when I moved to Jerusalem, you know, close to 50 years ago, um, if you went to the Haredi neighborhoods, you wouldn't hear Hebrew. And today, you scarcely hear Yiddish. Now, that is that, even the Haredim, you know, almost against their will of many of them have been brought into Israeli modernity. And that process, I think, is, is ineluctable. Just how intellectual, how far it goes, I don't know. Whether it can go fast enough, I don't know. Um, but that's a process. Um, Israeli Arabs, we haven't talked about Arabs. 21% of our population here. Um, if you talk to Israeli Arabs, sometimes they have a trouble getting around speaking Arabic in the Gulf because they speak, they speak Arab, Arabic Hebrew. The Hebrew word has so penetrated Israeli Arabic that it's become like a hybrid class. You know, you probably all at home speak Hebrewish, right? Right. Yeah. right? We all speak Hebrewish, right? Hebrew, <laughs> But they're speaking Arabic and Hebrew. Um, and they, too, are becoming uh, more Israeli. Um, Israeli Christian Arabs are per capita more affluent and better educated than Israeli Jews. Israeli Arabs generally are more socially upwardly mobile than Israeli Jews. Um, all of these are good uh, indicators. The question is, are they moving fast enough? And there are also indicators to the reverse. They're parts of the Haredi community which are resisting uh, at any cost, you know, integration into Israel. Parts of the Arab communities which are resisting at any cost. You know, all the protests this week, there's a terrible thing about the number of uh, Arab Palestine, uh, Israeli Arabs who have been killed in, by crime, uh, 
something like 80 people have been killed since the beginning of the year. Uh, totally unacceptable. Uh, but all the Arabs now, their leaders, are protesting for more police protection. It wasn't that long ago, the beginning of the century, the outbreak of the Second Intifada was everyone was protesting to get the police out of Arab villages. <laughs> so that things are happening. This is not a stagnant situation in any way. It's very dynamic. Ariane was trying to signal to me that he wants to ask the next question, but I want to do it. So we'll see, we'll see who's got the better question and we'll keep that one in the edit. Um, no, I wanted to ask, it's, it's not by accident and it's certainly not a superficial detail of, of the book that it's trilingual, um, that the book is, was written in English and then translated into Hebrew and translated into Arabic as well. Um, and I'd, I'd like to understand, if you, hopefully you could explain sort of, first of all, I mean, the, the thought process behind that, given what you've just said, is, right. is probably uh, self-explanatory. It's the first statement of the book. Exactly. There's a statement in the book already that's in Arabic. Yeah. Um, and, and so, but this idea of building the people, I think uh, Israel, perhaps uniquely, but certainly... Um, you know, especially uh, has sort of two sources to draw from in building a people. It's the current citizens, what be they Jewish, Israeli, Arab, Israeli, Christian, Arab, whoever they are, but also Jews around the world and all it. Um, where do you see the balance of building a people um, with those two factors? Is the idea that Israel should be encouraging more aliyah bringing sort of in, importing a people um, and continue to import a people um, or do you think that, you know, perhaps certainly from top down, like a governmental focus should be on building, building a people, building achdut and, and a unity amongst the people that are already here, be they English speakers, French speakers, Russian speakers, Arab, Arabic speakers, whatever they are. I, I don't see it in any way as a zero-sum game. But the answer to the question is yes, we should be doing both. Um, yes, we should be encouraging Aliyah. And uh, one of the points made in the book, drawing from my personal experience, is that mass aliyah has become very unpopular here. It's a major departure from, you know, sort of classic Zionist thinking, where one of the, the principal raison d'etre of the Zionist movement was to get Jews to move here. I had an unfortunate experience of being in government and trying to get the government to support massive aliyah from France at a time of rising anti-Semitism in France, and I found very little enthusiasm for it. Um, the reason being is that many Israelis say, listen, the place is too crowded already. Housing prices are too high. There's too few jobs. These people are coming. They have money. I got to give them money to have them come here. You know, we got enough French. Who needs any more of them? All right. And we saw it played out with Ukraine and the Russian issue, mm. too, again. Uh, so there's resistance to mass aliyah. Yes, the government should be in the business of encouraging aliyah. Every wave of immigrants to this country has enriched this country in innumerable ways, uh, certainly scientifically, technologically, but also spiritually and in terms of our, our defense. Um, so that's one. The other part of this is not in any way detracts from the importance of encouraging mass aliyah, and that is bringing Israeli Arabs into our society to a much greater degree. Um, I, I use a, a number of um, uh, formulas in the book, one I call the New Deal, for those Americans who remember the New Deal of, uh, of FDR in the 1930s, the New Deal is, is based on a very simple formula, which is the, the state of Israel will exert every possible effort to bring Israeli Arabs into the society, including waging war and discrimination. The, the goal is total equality in the workplace, in the study hall, and uh, government. Um, and the quid pro quo from the Israeli Arabs is loyalty. And um, I give an example of a country you may, not, you may know, Great Britain, which has uh, where there's an Anglo-Jewish community, about, I think, a quarter of a million Anglo-Jews, 
give or take. They have no problem saluting a flag that has not one but three crosses on it, singing a national anthem to the head of the Church of England, okay? fighting for that flag, dying for that flag in many places. Okay? Uh, why can't Israeli Arabs salute a flag that has them again David on it? Why can't they sing Hatikva? Um, I see no reason why not. People say, oh, they can't sing Hatikva. Let them sing Hatikva. That's, that's the quid pro quo. Because they are, again, I go back to models of nation states throughout the world. The, of the 194 nations in the world, most of them are nation states. And most of those nation states have large non-national minorities, who are, which are loyal. Israel should be no different. Israel should be no different. So the last point I'd make is that I also talk about bringing Israeli Arabs into our story. Here's where being a novelist helps. Um, we, the Jewish people, are a story. I think we're the greatest story that humanity's ever known. Um, and it's a story that we tell ourselves. We tell ourselves our stories. Okay? We talk again and again. You know, we teach them to our children. What are we teaching? We're teaching our story. And um, that story has been very flexible. Strangely, it's been. You know, we, we read in the parashot of these of, 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 that we're reading in these weeks um, about the need to you know to embrace the the stranger who lives among you all the time. That 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 formula repeats itself throughout the Torah. It's amazing. The emphasis put on the need to be open and inviting. Um, and we have found, even in our, our Zionist story, room. We found room for the Druze. We found room for the Circassians. We have found room for Ethiopian Jews. If you remember, you maybe don't remember what it was like the Aliyot in the 80s, all the difficulties these Ethiopian Jews had with the central rabbinate, had with the, with the medical system. No one even talks about that anymore. No one talks. We've made room for them. We have to find a place in our story for Israeli Arabs. Um, and it can be done. I've seen it done in the United States. In the United States, they made plenty of room for the story of, uh, of sort of Native Americans, not to make a, a, a cavalier comparison, because I think we're the natives here, um, the Jews. But we can make a place for them in our stories. And part of the stories could be you know, the, the conflicts we had with these people, but moving on. Well, just before we move on, just one question, I guess, for our listeners <laughs> yeah. around the world, like around the world and in diaspora communities, and thinking about, you know, one as 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 three or limb, mm -hmm. um, I think often there is a sentiment amongst um, or limb that live here in Israel that that Jews in the diaspora often it's as sort of easy in this sense, obviously challenges everywhere. It's easy to kind of have certain strong opinions on what happens in Israel because they don't actually have to then deal with it on a day-to-day -day basis. But what, what are you? <laughs> I'm of two minds. Okay, okay. you'd be but, surprised. But what what do you think in terms of? Well, in general, I'm interested to in your thoughts on that on that point as well. But in in, in specifically, we're talking about in terms of integrating Israeli Arabs into society. What role can Jews in the diaspora play in that as well? Well, if they come from certain diasporas, look at the, look at the, the government of the UK. I mean, who would have thought you'd have the prime minister that you have right now? Okay, mm -hmm. that, that you've made room uh, for all different people. Uh, in what, what I, you know, when I grew up, that was a white bread society, <laughs> and uh, and it's changed remarkably, Great Britain, remarkably. So that there, there's there's we can learn from diaspora communities. But just about the, say, the right uh, responsibility to belabor the term of, of diaspora Jews vis-a-vis um, -vis Israel, what, what occurs here, on one hand, yes, of course, diaspora Jews have an interest in what's going here. And yes, of course, the strength of Israel, the stability of Israel uh, immediately redounds to the strength and stability of diaspora Jewish communities. Um, and that's important. And, and I understand that when Israel preserves 
several policies, different policies that can complicate the lives of diaspora Jews, particularly if you're living, say, in the Bay Area of San Francisco or progressive area, it becomes uh, uncomfortable. Um, and yet, and yet, uh, diaspora Jews don't live here. They don't pay taxes. They don't go to the Army. Their kids are going to the Army. So they have to be extremely circumspect and restrained in expressing their opinions and the way they express their opinions. I personally have been against uh, some American Jewish organizations that have come out publicly uh, for or against the reforms in this country. Uh, first of all, because the issues are very complex. They don't understand them. Um, and I don't think they have that right to do it publicly. They can do it personally. They can pick up a phone. Okay? But that's very different as an organization coming out and making a statement. I was very much against it. Um, and um, finally, and I think most irascibly, is that I am not willing to jeopardize the safety of my family, my country, my society and community to make certain diaspora Jews feel more comfortable at cocktail parties. You mentioned before, uh, you mentioned before. Uh, I like that. You yeah. like that. <laughs> but that's it. And I've said that publicly. Yeah. And that always gets an audience real quiet. Okay. You want us to create a Palestinian state? Next door to us, right? Uproot 400,000 Jews, no problem, right? And that Palestinian state is going to be around for probably about 72 hours before it falls apart and becomes Hamas at best, ISIS is worse. I know you're going to feel better about yourself at that cocktail party, but we're going to be dead. And, uh, you know, what can I say? Unassailable. 100%. <laughs> uh, well, I'm with you on that one. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, look, I think, yeah, just, just, well, the next question, I think it comes to mind. I mean, I think, again, like uh, you mentioned before, you live in the Merkaz. Alex and I also uh, live in the Merkaz in Modiin. And I think it's, again, from that geographic distance that diaspora juries have, they, you know, we live in the Merkaz, we live in Modiin. So that means that we're fine. But I mean, five minutes down the road, if it's going to be a, 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 a state that wishes to destroy us, and we're, we're literally on the doorstep. So it's not yeah, so. You won't be, you won't be in, in, in rocket range. You'll be in rifle range. Yeah. Um, you mentioned before in terms of the judicial reforms, I mean, without kind of going into the nitty gritty bit at this point, right now as things stand, obviously this episode is going to go out in a couple of weeks, but right now as things stand, things seem to, seem to be at a bit of a stalemate, uh, maybe not a stalemate, but kind of in a bit of a difficult situation at the moment, mm -hmm. not in 25 years, in the immediate, what do you think can be done to try and move things forward? Well, as I, again, as I wrote in this book, in this chapter on on the need for judicial reform, clearly the situation wasn't sustainable. Um, I, for one, cannot understand why sitting judges should have any role in choosing their successors. Um, it's, it's unconscionable to me. I, I, I don't get it because any sitting judge is also a human being. It's going to choose somebody who basically agrees with them. And, um, and so the Supreme Court was perpetuating its, its worldview over and over again and basically marching in place circa 1994. But the Knesset, which reflects shifts in public opinion, had moved and moved precipitously to the right. And so the distance in worldview between the Supreme Court, which is a liberal Labor Party Supreme Court, and the Knesset, which is a Likud-led, I guess it was getting wider and wider, and the, and the Supreme Court kept on overturning legislation uh, repeatedly. And that was not a sustainable issue. People back when I was in Knesset, we're now starting in 2016, we're already saying we need an override law because we're elected, they're not elected, right? We represent the popular will, they don't. 
Um, and I was very, very concerned about it because I'm of the opinion that the principle of judicial review in which the, the Supreme Court has the final word is a pillar of just about any democratic society in the world. And I saw that what was, under, what was in danger of being vitiated was, was judicial review. So my proposals were ways of reforming the Supreme Court in such a way that uh, maintain the principle of judicial review, but let the Supreme Court, the composition of the Supreme Court, more directly reflect uh, Israeli public opinion, and which I don't think is, you know, it is not, uh, it's not running a marathon. Right? It's not rocket science, it really isn't, and, um, and it can be done. So there are solutions. Uh, my particular solution, which I recommend, but it doesn't have to be anybody's solutions, was that of the 15 judges, eight should be um, nominated and approved by the Knesset, the government, and seven should be chosen by a completely independent panel, um, in which, as far as I'm concerned, should be no judge, sitting judges on that panel. And that is the way you assure a, a more pluralistic Supreme Court. We need a more pluralistic Supreme Court because if, you, if it's only the Knesset choosing them, then you won't have, you know, you won't have, a, say, a Haredi judge. You won't have an Arab judge. Uh, and we need that in this country. Um, P.S. Um, I'm also against the Constitution. And I've been against the Constitution for well over 20 years now. It's not new to me. Um, and for many reasons, not the least of which is it's never going to happen. Guys, if you could tell me, could you get Americans into an into a, into a auditorium in Philadelphia today and get them to agree on a constitution? <laughs> this is no, you're laughing. It's like, no way. Well, well, yes. Now make them Jewish. And, uh, yeah, really. <laughs> or get, now make them Jewish and put them in the Middle East, all right, with, with the left or the right. Yeah, you're going you know, to get a constitution. You're not going to get a constitution. As a matter of fact, I make the case in the book that this country actually survives because we don't have a constitution. Because we operate in the gray and we're very flexible. You've got to be very flexible here. Once you've got a constitution, you are locked in. And that was what Ben-Gurion said back in 1948. I didn't want to create a document that would lock this state in for 300 years. Because things change. And we have the basic laws. I just wish that people would take the basic laws more seriously. We don't. They, 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 there's tremendous inflation of basic laws. And, uh, and um, that is the way to go for this country. Um, and I hope we would continue it. And some of the basic laws would provide for changes in the way judges are, are selected, and that's one of the many issues I deal with. It has to do with the scope of the Supreme Court, uh, the basis for the rulings. Uh, there are many, but none of them, none of them are insurmountable. We've spoken about being Olim, we've spoken about the role of the diaspora community uh, to Israel today, or sort of the um, approach and how they can help, and, and this and the other. Um, but I'd ask, as, as a veteran Ole, uh, talking to two uh, newer Olim, um, and talking to a, a uh, listenership uh, that's mostly outside of Israel. Um, you know, I think we, we're now somewhere around 200,000 listeners, um, mostly uh, outside of Israel. Um, we, and we've talked in previous podcasts, we've talked about you know, the, the push and the pull of immigration and that sort of thing, the thing that we will learn in, in middle school geography and, and whatever. Um, what, what are the reasons, when you look at the state of Israel as it is today, the imperfect thing that it is today, um, what are the the pull factors that that you see? What are the things that you look you look at and you think you know when I made Aliyah it was for this, um, or when I'm talking to people in the diaspora, the the things that you can uh, look at and think proudly of. This is what the Jewish state is, and this is why the Olim should come here. This is why the citizens should be proud to live here. What what are the things that we are doing right that we need to? So there's the shot answer. <laughs> And then there's the, the much deeper answer. And the shot answer is this. Um, I mentioned what Israel was like when I moved here. Um, 
the Wild West, and I look out over Tel Aviv skyline today, and I have a deep sense of, I think, of, of a fulfillment accomplishment that I had some role, however minuscule, uh, in making all this, and seeing Israel emerge as one of the most powerful and successful countries in the world, because it certainly didn't start that way. When I moved here, not only did we not have peace with Egypt and Jordan, we didn't have relations with China, we didn't have relations with India, we didn't have relations with Africa, almost nothing with South America. We had a friendly relationship with the United States, not a strategic alliance with the United States. This country is utterly, thoroughly transformed, and overwhelmingly for the better. And, um, and yet, we are a, a state not just you know, of progress, we're a state in progress. And I would say to, to young diaspora Jews, come and, and be part of building this place, because it's still, it's still being built. 62% of the country is negative, which remains to be largely unbuilt. I mean, there are frontiers here that haven't really been touched, almost untouched. So there's so much, so much to do, so much to do. So that's sort of the, the obvious answer. Um, the last one, the deeper one, I must say the, the spiritual one is uh, if you are a person of belief and believe that we Jews are here for a reason, that Jewish history has meaning, human history has meaning, that the relationship between Jewish, the, the meaning of Jewish history and the meaning of human history, um, then being here puts you in the heart of history, the heart of Jewish history, um, the thrust of Jewish history. Um, I mean, I would not have missed it for the world. And, um, and for that reason, some of the issues here are so exquisitely painful. Um, maybe if I lived in America, I'd just sort of be part of the 1% in America, and I'd lock the door, and I wouldn't have to think about all this. For here, everything is personal. There's nothing that's not personal. But as painful as it is, I love that personal pain because it comes down to responsibility. It's my responsibility. It's nobody else's. I can't shunt it off on anybody else. Um, it's that wonder I still have, the wonder I still have of speaking Hebrew, of my children and grandchildren speaking Hebrew. And everyone's got to pause and say, oh my, my grandkids speak fluent Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they... Every once in a while, it's very important to take a step back and say, and do that, oh my, and, um, and be very, very thankful. The greatest criticism I have for our critics in the diaspora is that they are ungrateful. They're ungrateful for the inestimable privilege of having a flawed sovereignty in the land of Israel. That is extraordinary. I, I'm going to leave you with just a little name. Are we getting to the end? I got to leave you yeah. a, little, a little game I play with myself. I have a mental game. Every once in a while, when I f I'm fed up, and I do get fed up, you know, um, I imagine myself being in the basement of my grandparents' home in a little shtetl called the Nisht, about 70 miles from Vilna. My grandmother would tell us about hiding in this basement and listening to the hoofs of the Cossacks going overhead during a pogrom. And I'm in this basement in the dark, and I say to my grandmother, you know, my grandparents, I say, listen, guys, um, I don't know how to tell you this, but someday you won't be in this basement. Someday there's going to be a Jewish state that has one of the most powerful armies in the world. It's going to be a democratic state, one of the few countries that's never known a second of non-democratic governance. Someday this country's gonna have seven of the world's leading universities, the, the greatest scientific institute in the world. You're gonna have 
young people speaking Hebrew and studying Jewishness openly and going on and on and on. But, but, you know, maybe you don't want the state because there's going to be a problem with the thing called the, these people called the Palestinians. And, you know, there are going to be issues of, of synagogue and state. And there's going to be issues about reform of the Supreme Court. Maybe you don't want that state. And my parents, grandparents look at me and say, are you out of your mind? <laughs> are you out of your mind? And every once in a while, I have to have that conversation with my grandparents. I think on that note, that's the, the perfect uh, moment to finish. So thank you so much again uh, to Michael Oren. Um, I mean, all the formers, all the, all the currentlies. Um, but, you know, big thank you to, to Oi Rogers uh, for joining us uh, on the current podcast. Um, uh, we hope to have you again sometime, but this has, been, this has been fantastic. Thanks to, to Corin. I've had a long, long association with Corin. I published my first novel with Toby Press. Um, it is, I will say, the best trilogy of novellas ever written about the negative desert. Because <laughs> it is the only. <laughs> Sand Devil, <laughs> now available at famously reduced price. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we have time for this week. Um, thank you for joining us on the current podcast. We look forward to seeing you again next week. Uh, as always, if you would like to be in touch with us, you can email us uh, podcast at corinpub.com or on social media at corinpublishers. Um, you can get 10% off your next order from corinpub.com, including Michael's new book, 2048, The Rejuvenated State. It is really a very, very important read um, for anyone uh, with even a passing interest uh, in Israel and with Judaism. Um, so to get 10% off uh, that book and your entire order, just enter the code podcast at checkout. Um, we will be back again in a couple of weeks with another wonderful guest to teach us the whole Torah standing on one leg, Al Regalachat. Uh, until next time, this has been the Quran Podcast. <laughs>